Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The only thing longer than the Who's career was yesterday's council meeting about encampments. It went on forever and got us... Well, I don't know exactly if it moved uh, the needle at all. Let me bring in John Best, who's the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us now. John, how are you this evening? I'm fine. Good to be with you, Good Scott. to be with you as well. Appreciate you jumping on here. It's, um, I mean, we do have an answer. We do have the, uh, the tiny homes that have been okayed, so that's movement. And I think that's probably a very good thing to give that a try and at least see what happens. But other than that, did anything happen at the meeting yesterday, really? More much Very happened? Li- no, very little, Scott. Um, essentially, staff had presented this encampment strategy back in May. Um, council didn't want to really deal with it at that time. So they, they said, uh, go away and do a summer uh, of consultation. So we had those three encampment meetings. And basically, uh, staff in their report said we people don't want encampments in parks, but we're still going to have to put them in parks because uh, there's been some legislation that's really complicated the issue, Scott. It uh, basically uh, a Kitchener court decision said that if you can't provide housing, if you can't provide a shelter, you can't kick somebody out of a of an encampment. So that's that's the backdrop that's that's really created this conundrum that uh, that we're in. So uh, aside from the tiny shelters and and even with that, um, I'm not sure we're gaining anything because they're being placed in the same location where there are approximately 20 or 30 tents. And my understanding is that the tents now are going to have to give way just to the tiny shelters. So if we're simply transferring people out of tents into the shelters, uh, we haven't increased our stock of uh, of housing significantly. We've just uh, replaced one method with another. So yeah, not much accomplished to be honest. And 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 I think <laughs> I don't think anybody is happy with the result, uh, regardless of how you feel about encampments or whether you're you know what what side of the spectrum you're on. They're really. Uh, is uh, the solution that they ultimately approved yesterday really doesn't satisfy anybody. Let me ask you a question on this one, John, because you mentioned the, you know, the, the meetings and everything they had in the public, you know, reach out to have people be able to give their opinion. And yeah, you know what, we do have this issue um, with, that you mentioned from, from Kitchener, from the courts, but you know, a couple of years ago, three years ago, we asked the public about urban boundary expansion. And when they spoke, and it was roughly the same numbers, that became a sacred document. The public has spoken. We must follow the will of the public. And here you have almost the same number say, according to the report, very strongly, we do not want these in parks and nothing to do with that. And I just wonder if we knew that was what they were going to say, why did we even bother with the meetings? Why waste people's time? Well, I, I think it's, uh, I, I can't speak for council, but I think they were maybe hoping for a different result. Maybe that if there had been some consultation, they were going to hear something that, that would either, if you're an encampment, they, they don't like being called encampment supporters. Uh, you get your grammar corrected if you use that phrase, but the, the, the people that are advocating for leaving the current situation the way it is, um, we're perhaps hoping uh, something would come out of the public consultation. But that first meeting that they held on the mountain where they handed out the red and green cards, 
and you flashed them, whether you agreed or disagreed with what was being spoken, that that was the meeting that really showed just uh, overwhelming public opposition to encampments in the park. Uh, the second meeting downtown, uh, there were adjustments made, shall we say, Ooh, to yes. the format. So we didn't have the red and green cards, but it was still very clear that uh, there's just uh, not a lot of public support. And, uh, and and you know, for good reasons. I mean, uh, quite frankly, these, these encampments are not only unsightly, if it was simply unsightly, that might be one issue, but there's danger. We've, we've already had two very serious incidents uh, out of encampments downtown, one resulting in a homicide, the other one resulting in somebody going to hospital with life-threatening injuries. So it's not that, like there's no danger there. Uh, criminals uh, uh, selling drugs are in and out of these encampments, and that can lead to violence. So, you know, you can talk about sympathy, you can talk about compassion, but uh, essentially, you're seeing public spaces taken over by something that really has some risk to it. Mm. And John, you know, it, it's funny because earlier today I was reading in uh, in the New York Post, they have a, a story that New York City has now opened up a tent city. So that, remember back during COVID outside, I think it was Joseph Brandt Hospital, they built those field hospitals basically for... Yes. And so giant things like that, almost like a soccer dome, and they've turned this into a a, uh, a place for migrants to stay. They've got cots in there. And I, as I started thinking about this, I thought, so to, to fulfill the rule of law that would allow them to do something, I wondered if you put up a temporary heated or cooled tent facility with cots, could that be then the step that would give the city then the chance to say, we have beds available, therefore we can then make the move that people want to say, okay, you can't be in a park anymore. Does it have to be bricks and mortar or can it be something less like that, but still a permanent place that has somewhere for them to be? I, I just didn't hear a lot of creativity in the meeting is my point as I'm getting to New York City seems to be trying it. Yeah, and well, I, I think it certainly would be worth testing out. If you look at London, Ontario, they're working with ATCO trailers, construction trailers that have been specially fitted out for the purpose. And obviously that would provide, um, you know, a, a, a safer kind of uh, shelter because presumably you could lock the door. Although I've heard arguments that, you know, uh, some people with mental health and addiction problems inside a locked door is maybe not a great idea. Uh, it, it's a troublesome problem. It's it's very perplexing and it's easy to point fingers and blame other people. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I think actually um, uh, Councillor Pauls uh, put her finger on it yesterday at the meeting when she said, you know, we're ignoring the fact that a very large number of these people that are living in tenting campus either have mental illness or addiction issues or both. And, and we're sort of trying to pretend that it's all an economic issue. It's simply poverty. They can't afford houses. Certainly there's a, there's a, there's people in those encampments that are indeed in that position, but they're excellent candidates to get moved into shelters. The other point I made in a story today is that uh, when the mayor uh, presented that letter to the province asking, or to the feds actually, asking for $9 million in emergency funding to help with the, this is the refugee and asylum seeker issue, she mentioned in the letter that they found 200 spaces in a matter of a couple of weeks 
for refugees and asylum seekers. And we're told we have 160 in uh, in tent encampments. So the obvious question is, if we could do that at that speed, why can't we uh, do the same thing for the people in encampments? And the answer is that many of them are simply not able mm -hmm. to go into an environment where there's some restriction on drug use and, and uh, other things. And, and they actually prefer to be outside. They, they actually falsify uh, questionnaires that they're given from time to time to check out how acute their situation is because they, they prefer the freedom. Now, that's not speaking for all of them, uh, obviously, but it's just a much more complicated issue it's than a very, people would have it portrayed. Absolutely. Uh, we got to run. I wish we had a lot more time. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Thanks for doing this. Good to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, we got some news about where the province is as far as its finances coming out of the first quarter and... Maybe the word that comes to mind most when I heard them was neutral. Let me bring in Colin DeMello. He's the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Is neutral a reasonable word for what we heard yesterday? Yeah, neutral is definitely the word for uh, what the finance minister laid out yesterday. And that is quite surprising. I mean, you you consider the current context in which Ontario finds itself and many of us find ourselves, right? Interest rates are rising. Uh, the rate of inflation is kind of bouncing all over the place. One day it's down, next day it's up. Um, and, and, you know, through all of that, it seems like Ontario's economy is still weathering, right? Our real gross domestic uh, product our GDP is actually up by about 1%, which means that Canada's economy is, uh, you know, still has some healthy output. And, and on top of that, it seems like there hasn't been too much of a uh, wrench being thrown into the province's finances. The finance minister says we're still on track to record a deficit, but it's a $1.3 billion deficit. And as far as deficits are concerned, that could be considered fairly small. Um, you know, we're still expected to pull in about $204 billion in revenue. That's from, you know, sales tax and personal income taxes. And we're still on track to spend about $204 billion as well um, on the expenditure side. So it seems like everything uh, on that side is, is balancing out. The province will still be in a bit of a deficit. Nothing really has changed since the last budget. So, you know, that is really, from the government's perspective, something of good news. Because, you know, if, if all of a sudden the numbers started to tank, that would be very concerning given the current climate. But the finance minister says... We're not immune to what's happening in the global economy or the Canadian economy. And they're they're always seeming to kind of couch their words with a bit of caution mm. in terms of they don't know what's coming next. Okay, so th that's, as we say, neutral or even potentially good news generally that we're, we're okay there. But let me throw the giant butt into the mix here because we know that we have a vote coming up on a potential teacher strike that leads to more money once that gets settled. We're always hearing about more money needed for this, for that, the other. There's a million things that are sort of looming and hanging out there. Is this a temporary dull roar before we start getting into problems again? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, you have to kind of take a look at the decision related to Bill 124. You might remember Bill 124 was the legislation the government put into place to um, limit the rate of increase for salaries for right. any public sector employee. That was struck down by a court. And now a number of unions had what was called a reopener clause in their contracts. So originally they signed contracts with the government 
under this 1% per year for three years. But now they're able to reopen their contracts. And in the healthcare industry, I mean, they're getting huge increases, right? Uh, not double digits, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, over the course of several years, 6%, 5%, 4%, they're getting big increases. So that is going to be a significant um, weight on the government's finances if they're going to have to start paying all of these out. And in some cases, the money has already gone out. There's been some estimations that the government has already spent about a billion dollars on healthcare workers, and those bills are going to add up. And the other thing is, yes, the education workers. Um, when when we last checked in with the, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, representing public elementary teachers, there was a leaked document given to uh, Global News that said that the government was offering them a 5% increase over four years. So 1.25% each year. And the union is clearly going to say, well, that's that's not enough. That doesn't meet uh, the cost of living increases that, that we're all facing right now. So the government could face a massive bill uh, with the teachers if they you know, are forced to kind of go head to head to, with them uh, with a strike. So you're looking at a lot of financial factors on the horizon. And so, yeah, um, what the picture is like today doesn't mean that is going to remain the picture for tomorrow. And it could mean, you know, the government has less room to play with. And this government in particular, because the provincial government is the overseer, the controller, basically, of municipalities, uh, every city, it seems now, is coming cap in hand. Toronto led the way, saying we need, well, they went to the federal government too, but they we need money. Hamilton is saying we need money. Not really surprising then that this that the province is saying, well, hold on a second, we just don't have a lot to give you right now. Yeah, I, I mean it. It is not surprising, but it is also surprising, and I'll, I'll break it down why. So, um, you know, on one hand, the government says, look, municipalities have to play within what money they have, right? Municipalities can't raise any more money. Uh, Toronto, as an example, has certain taxes that they implement, like a double land transfer tax. But beyond that, they can't, they're really limited by the province. So if they want to put a new road toll on the Gardner Expressway, they need the province's approval and the province has already said no. So because they're so limited, they come to the province. The province is saying, look, there's one taxpayer and we're not going to come to your rescue every single time. At the same time, the province can legally run a deficit. The city of Toronto, city of Hamilton, any other city cannot by law run a deficit. They have to balance their books. And so that's where you know, it is a bit surprising that the government wouldn't be willing to kind of take a look at their own deficits and say, well, could we borrow a little bit so that we could help some of these municipalities out rather than having these municipalities kind of tough it out themselves? And, and there's one important note. Remember that municipalities across Ontario have lost a very important revenue tool, and that's development charges. Developers are charged these fees by municipalities that largely go to pay for the infrastructure that supports new communities being built in, in, in any given city. We're at a time where there's going to be a lot of building, a lot of additional communities, high rises potentially, and these developers won't be paying into these cities. And so these cities are now looking to the province saying, well, you cut off a significant mm -hmm. source of revenue it's it's now up to you to make us whole. And we don't know if the province is going to do that. There's one other thing that's specific to Hamilton, and I'm catching you cold with this one because I, I gave you no forewarning, but it's just where the conversation has gone here. We have a very large, very expensive infrastructure project that is sort of hanging in the 
background there waiting to be done, our LRT. Um, I don't think anybody believes that the price of the LRT for construction will be the last bill that are the last number that we were given several months ago. Do you see the province taking any of these large projects like I'm talking about and saying, we just can't do that. It's just times have changed. We just can't do what we wanted to do once upon a time, or you've got to scale it way back. Or is that too much even for a government to do once the, not the work has started, but the the work has started? Yeah, well, well, look, I mean, the government is really sensitive to the costs in the Hamilton LRT, right? We all remember back in 2019, this was one of the reasons they decided to cancel the Hamilton LRT, because they said the Too costs much. weren't as presented at, at first. And and it was, yeah, it was, uh, you know, going to be way too expensive for taxpayers. But but they've also learned a very valuable lesson from the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. The province, the former liberal government, had handed out one giant contract to a consortium of companies that said they were going to build everything from the ground up, from the tunneling to the tracks to, uh, you know, even training uh, TTC employees to, to, to operate those trains. And because of that one large contract, you know, the the province and the contract holders are in this massive fight over who's ultimately responsible for finishing the project. What the province has learned is break it all down into smaller contracts, right? Give out one contract for the tunneling, give out one contract for the laying of the track, hand out another contract for the trains. And in doing so, you can hold a bunch of people individually responsible without the entire contract potentially being a breach. And once that entire contract is in breach, then basically the province is being held hostage. So I think they're looking to implement those lessons in real time and to you know really make sure that the 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 negative um, results of both the Ottawa LRT and the Eglinton Crosstown LRT aren't repeated in Hamilton. They have a lot of lessons now, and that means they'll have fewer excuses if they don't get it right. That is Colin DeMello. We didn't know we were talking about LRT, but hey, you never know where these conversations go. Uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News. Colin, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today, two big announcements um, down at Tim Horton's field. One of them, which we'll get into in a couple of minutes here, was about bringing back an old name to the stadium uh, that I think is long overdue, but glad it's happening. But the big, big announcement today was the Ticats and Neil Lumsden, the Minister of Sport from the province, and, oh, I don't know, everybody apparently else in the world who has anything to do with football was talking about the Grey Cup that's coming up this fall here in Hamilton. Uh, Rick Zamperin, I believe, was down there, right? He was down there today. Uh, I was down there. I was actually at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, oh, the, very, yes, the yes. very posh AGH. Mm. Yeah. And so I would say it's very fair to say that the Grey Cup that we had here two years ago, due to nobody's fault, it was COVID, was a not real Grey Cup. It was a real Grey Cup. They gave out the trophy, but it wasn't what was planned. This sounds like it's the full deal. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I asked uh, uh, Ticats owner Bob Young about that. Uh, you know, 2021 was, you know, the first time since 1996 that Hamilton was able to host the Grey Cup. And, you know, while the game was fantastic, the whole experience around it, especially the festival aspect, was was really muted because, you know, COVID was kind of still a thing. You know, Omicron was revving up as, as we were, you know, going into you know, the, uh, the second half of, uh, you know, December and there's a, a lot of the thought of in a while. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of things that they had planned that they they just couldn't execute because of because of the virus. So this time around, uh, they're going full bore. So a lot of the things that we are going to be talking about here and that we're going to be seeing come November in the week leading up to the Grey Cup, they had planned for two years ago. Although I did ask Bob Young that, listen, 2021 was really you know, almost a blessing in disguise. And I hate to say it that way, but it it gave the organization and the city kind of a, a, a taste test of what worked and what didn't. And so I asked Bob Young about, you know, what was this a blessing in disguise? And he kind of agreed saying, yeah, there were some things that they tried out, which were great. And other things that they quickly realized weren't really, um, uh, didn't really go according to plan. So I think they've not only had the chance to fine tune what they did a couple of years ago, they're planning to approve upon it. So I'm really excited to see um, how this all comes about. Uh, by the way, I realized just a moment ago that uh, I never introduced Rick. Now, I don't think Rick needs an introduction, but for the <laughs> for the four people who don't know who I'm talking to, Rick Zamperin is the host of Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. He's also the host of the fifth quarter after every Ticat game. So just in case someone says, who's that? They must be new to town. If that's true, Rick, everybody knows you. But I appreciate that. Uh, this is, okay, so this is not even just from what I'm seeing a Hamilton event. They have... They have taken it and splattered it all over Southern Ontario by the looks of it. Yeah, one of the really exciting parts that I I didn't even think this could be a possibility because we haven't really seen something to this degree. You know, when you go to a Grey Cup in Vancouver or Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, you know, you name the city, there's usually a hub where, you know, there's some restaurants or a convention center, maybe an arena that they utilize for many of the team parties, many of the concerts, uh, many of the activities that Grey Cup attendees from, from decades ago will have attended year in and year out. This time is a little bit different. And one of the things that jumped out to me when I first heard it earlier today was the fact that Niagara Falls is going to be utilized. And uh, I spoke to the mayor, Jim Diodati, earlier today, and he had a great analogy. You know, the uh, Hamilton and, and the Grey Cup game and Tim Hortons Field and what's happening here, even with the festival, that's the, the meat and potatoes of the whole Grey Cup experience. What Niagara Falls is going to offer is the dessert and maybe a little bit of ice wine as well, because what Niagara <laughs> Falls is going to be incorporated in is a couple of things. Number one, free shuttle service from Niagara Falls to Hamilton and, and, and vice versa. And that is key because when you look at the the hotel accommodations and the vacancy rate and, and the amount of people that Hamilton and even Burlington can kind of hold, you know, there's a cap, there's a limit to that. So when Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati was asked, hey, do you want to be part of Grey Cup Week? Uh, he jumped at the chance, knowing that there are many more hotel rooms to be offered there. But not only that, the CFL Awards are going to be staged at the Falls View Casino Resort in Niagara Falls. So another reason to go to uh, that award show, maybe go to the Falls, maybe make a day of it. Maybe if you haven't, if you've never been to Niagara Falls before, I know there's not a lot of people. But when you're bringing in people from all over the country to come to the Grey Cup, and now they're sampling things from outside of Hamilton, this is certainly a win-win for those communities, Niagara Falls included. I'm glad Jim Giadotti said it was the dessert, not the creamed spinach <laughs> with the meat and potatoes. Yeah, but, yeah. But, you're, but look, you're, you're absolutely right. Everybody who's going to come here from Regina, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Montreal, wherever, they're going to make a trip if they've not been here before to Niagara Falls anyway. Mm-hmm. So you may as well drive, you know, drop it in and, and make it accessible and, and do, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that way. So the other big question, of course, is, and I'm going by recollection here, but I don't recall that last time, again, because of the circumstances, not because of anyone's fault, 
that they didn't really have the whole team part. I know they had team parties and stuff, but it wasn't what it would be. What is going to be happening in Hamilton? What's going on downtown? What's the, there is still a hub. So what's going to be going on there? Uh, yeah, there absolutely is a hub. And there's, there's a few kind of tentacles to this. And, you know, if you're Hamilton, you'll, you'll be aware of all the streets and locations that I mentioned, and they're all kind of within walking distance as well. Of course, you know, Tim Hortons Field is, is basically going to be reserved for game day. So let's just put that to the side a little bit. But, you know, picture James Street North from York Boulevard to Barton Street, a nice stretch of uh, street that has phenomenal restaurants, uh, great in the art scene, just a, a really good local hub. That's basically going to be closed to traffic. That's going to be a pedestrian-only fun zone, if you will. Uh, you know, think super crawl. That kind of vibe where fans can interact with different activities. There's going to be live music. Uh, you know, food is going to be a, a big part of the equation with so many great restaurants down there. There's, I'm sure, going to be a lineup of food trucks, and the list goes on and on. But on, on that stretch of road, we also know that the John Weir Foot Armory, the James Street Armory, is uh, along that stretch. And that, too, is going to be used as a, an interactive zone, if you will. There's going to be a um, almost a, a third of a football field there. They're going to have flag football games. There's going to be certain exhibitions or exhibits that are all about the Canadian Football League, a you know a, a fun zone where fans can you know kick the ball or throw the ball or do all those kind of activities. So James Street is really going to play a huge part of this. And then there's other events like, you know, the alumni luncheon or the legends luncheon, as they call it, that's going to be at Leona station. There's going to be a, a student's uh, race. Uh, it's called uh, race to the cup where they're going to run from gauge park to Tim Hortons field. So you're getting the youth involved, the Hamilton public and Catholic school boards have both said, Hey, you know what? We know we have PA days throughout the school year. We're going to make the Friday before the gray cup, a PA day. So kids and families can potentially enjoy gray cup activities as well. So this is a, a really well thought out, robust, healthy, big, whatever you want to call it, Grey Cup Festival uh, idea or ideas that they've come up with. So yeah, hats off to the organizing committee for, for filling a bunch of buckets here when it comes to kids and families and adult fun and team parties at First Ontario Centre. And there's going to be a concert series there as well. And I was the convention centre will be utilized. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because uh, mm -hmm. it ties into another story. The, the, the rebuilding of first Ontario center. It's been pushed back a little bit. And as a result of the fact that it wasn't going to be ready to go yet, they said you can use it for concerts or something yes. to do with the gray cup. Do we know what's going to be in there yet? So that is one of the big golden nugget that still has to be unearthed because, and part of the equation is the Canadian football league. So the CFL is in charge of the game itself and part of the game day production is the halftime show. And I know everyone's got the question of, okay, who's playing the halftime? We had the Arkells a couple of years ago, and I think they would be thrilled to come back. I'm not sure if that would fit into their schedule, but the fact of the matter is that that announcement has not been made. They're looking at at least a couple more weeks, if not maybe a little bit longer than that, to uncover or release who the halftime act is. I've been told it's going to be a, a a pretty enticing and pretty exciting announcement. So I can't wait. I really have no inside information. You know, the entertainment you're not, world is- You're not going to announce Taylor Swift right now? <laughs> now that would be sensational. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, I do not know who it is. All right. Um, so that is that is all uh, coming up. It was announced today. People can go online. They can find it. I'm sure it's at the Ticats website. It'll be on the CFL website. You can find it. I saw all over the place. So you can find all the details. The other announcement, I just wanted to go to this in the few minutes that we have left here, the minute or so we have left here. 
Um, I, and I assume that it went ahead today. I know it had been delayed once. I didn't get down to this because I was coming into the studio, but they were announcing that the press box, the media center at Tim Hortons Field was going to be named after Ivor Wynn. What do you think about the idea of bringing Ivor Wynn back into the stadium that no longer bears his name, but still? Well, I, I love it because, you know, it just it, it just makes you think about the past. You know, people still call Tim Hortons Field, you know, they'll call it Tim Hortons Field, but they'll always reference, you know, the old Iverwin or, you know, I remember I was at a game and they always mention at the old Iverwin because there's there's a similarity, obviously, with the site, but there's very much of a different feel from that facility. We know it was, you know, built for the Empire Games back in, you know, the ni- 1930, but there were so many amazing memories from Ticats games, championships, Grey Cups, big games, Labor Day classics, that people just have it ingrained in their soul about what he and what that facility kind of meant to them growing up and, and cheering on this team. So I'm I'm really happy that the team, the city is kind of honored Iverwin in this way. And I know in today's day and age of, you know, corporate uh, sponsorships that, you know, the, 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 the day of calling a facility after someone is, is long gone because they're looking at those sponsorship dollars. But this, this, I think was a unique way to honor Iverwin. You know, other teams have kind of done it with, you know, uh, so-and-so field at, you know, blank stadium. I I like this, you know, this is, this is a way to kind of, you know, put his name still in headlights, make sure that people kind of see that and recognize that it would have been, I think even better if maybe they did so or did something on the ground floor of Iverwind. So when people come into Tim Hortons field, they can maybe see an exhibit or see what he was all about having in the press box. I mean, only the media and, you know, maybe some team officials and, and CFL officials are going to see that clearly they'll still recognize the importance that he played in the Canadian football league. But I think it, it would have been even that much better if the, if more of the general public could, you know, realize and kind of remember who he was. One thing though, that I think they are doing, and we'll see this on Thursday when they play, uh, against Edmonton, I believe on the face of the press box, they're putting Ivor Wynn Media Center. So people oh, will amazing. see his name, which will to exactly what you're saying, because, you know, it is, imp- I think it's important. I do it for all the reasons you just said, there are so many memories there. Mm-hmm. I think throwing that away is kind of wasting all the great times that people had or dismissing it. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, Hey, it's new. It's better. Tim Hortons field is flashier and all the rest, but we still remember those, those days. And we had a lot of great memories there. Anyway, uh, Rick Zamperin, always appreciate you coming on and doing this. We'll let, uh, let you get to bed now. So we can be up at five thirty. <laughs> well, not up at five 30 on the air at five 30 tomorrow morning. Good morning, Hamilton. Appreciate you doing this. I, I always uh, like talking football and other sports uh, with you, Scott. Appreciate the time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a word that you have probably heard an awful lot in the last number of years, uh, more probably than you ever did five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. And that is trauma and not, not trauma as in being hit by a car and you're being taken to the trauma center, but internal trauma, emotional trauma, psychological trauma. This is a, it, it is something that more people talk about now than I don't think we've ever heard before. Well, there are a number of people now who are saying, wait a second, hold on for a minute. Is this a good thing? Not, we don't want anyone to have trauma, but let me, let me tell you. So in the Atlantic uh, this week, there was a piece, has the national obsession with trauma done real damage to teen girls? Uh, there was a blogger, 
uh, Joanne Jacobs, she's an education blogger, warning too much trauma talk encourages fragility. And my next guest, who has written in the National Post and in The Spectator, not the Hamilton Spectator, The Spectator, the British political magazine, how the cult of trauma took over mental health. His name is Alistair Morty. He joins me now. Alistair, how are you today? Uh, very well, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you doing this because it, it is a catchphrase now almost that that we hear people talk about their trauma and we accept it, I guess, because we just assume that people have trauma. It's a word that is now part of the much more common vernacular than it ever was before. What's the problem with using trauma or talking about trauma? Is this not good that people are expressing what is hurting them or what has hurt them? Uh, well, Two problems, I guess. Um, first of all, it's just incorrect. And, you know, medical terminology is important. So PTSD, which is what we would traditionally think of as trauma, you know, most people understand that there's a psychiatric diagnosis called post-traumatic stress disorder. That is one of the most well-validated disorders in psychiatry, you know, and there are some that aren't particularly well-validated, but that is a really solid, well-understood um, part of psychiatry. You know, psychiatrists have known that there's a thing called PTSD since the Vietnam War, and it's a really serious condition. I mean, if you were talking to somebody with PTSD, um, you would know it. You know, it's not um, it's nearer to psychosis than it is depression. So it's a really serious mental disorder. And the, the way that the word trauma is used now is... Um, quite flippant most of the time in in comparison to that and uh, much more watered down and the problem with watering down medical diagnoses is that once you start doing that nobody knows what they're dealing with so doctors can't talk to doctors about it they can't talk to patients about it researchers can't research it because you're not comparing apples with apples you know so that's the first problem and the second problem is the one that you alluded to um, from the piece in, in the Atlantic, which is that it just fragilizes people. And this, uh, younger generations are, you know, arguably um, being encouraged to be more fragile than we once were. And there's, I think, there's a growing understanding now amongst ordinary people that this is not a healthy process. You know, a certain amount of stoicism, stoicism has become unfashionable, but uh, perhaps it's now having a renaissance because people are starting to understand that it's, it's actually a good trait to have. And most human beings are actually pretty resilient. And it, it is not true that human beings are easily traumatized. I mean, as if, how would we have got here if we were so easily traumatized as a species? We just wouldn't have made it. So um, anything that sort of turns back that that um, eons old tradition of human resilience is is not a healthy thing and that's what we're seeing now and it fits with of course everything else that we're seeing politically and so on okay so why and i think there are people who are listening who are going to agree with you and say yes we're, we're more fragile now and we we uh, i've read recently that people say you know we're identifying ourselves by our trauma uh, somehow there is, if for some people, and I don't quite understand this, for some maybe it almost seems there is some status in trauma. That that to me seems antithetical. Why would you want to put your status in something terrible that happened to you? Mm -hmm. But it does seem that's the case in some places. 
Well, yes, and I think you would only see that in advanced industrial nations. I don't think that you would be, well, we, we don't see it um, in uh, people who are actually victims, of course. So it's a type of victimology that's become, it's almost like a decadent sort of cult. If you think of um, sort of 18th century France and Marie Antoinette and, you know, pretending to be a shepherdess, uh, when people are very um, luxuriated and very well off and very cushioned, they tend to become quite decadent and um, wish to imagine things that they're not. So, you know, anorexia is not very common in countries where there's no food. You know, um, yeah. suicide is, is not so common in countries where people are struggling terribly. So we're not um, seeing this around the world in the developing world, the, these kind of things we're talking about with the trauma identification? Well, absolutely not. But that's not to say that it won't spread there, probably mostly through the, through the elite classes first, you know, and become a thing in 10 years. It, it could it could well do. Um, but it's like a, a social contagion, really, you know. But no, you don't see um, it is a thing that is most prevalent in, in advanced Western nations, most especially the Anglo nations that are in some ways uh, at the forefront of um, political uh, progressivism so it is it is absolutely a part of the political progressive movement it's part of identity politics it it um sort of juxtapositions onto that it's not entirely a psychological phenomenon in fact it is a sign that psychology and other areas of healthcare are becoming politicized when did that change? Because for the longest time, I think for most of the course of history, I think strength was seen as the desired quality, not weakness or trauma. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's it's um, it's a crisis of meaning, really. I mean, if you think about um, young people today, um, particularly in the mid 2010s, we saw a move, didn't we, towards um, the fracturing of identity politics into this uh, cross-sectional um, hierarchy of, of victimhood that's been spoken of a lot by, um, you know, people like Jordan Peterson, for example. Um, the idea that that you can accrue uh, victim points. Um, well, that is partly driven, I suppose, by social media, partly by the fact that people don't really have, uh, most ordinary people don't really have that much to complain about and um in the absence of anything any real problems um people tend to invent imaginary problems and i think i really think that that is what it is and of course you're, you're more likely to see that in in young people who are um looking for a trend uh looking for a rebellion looking for um something to make their life maybe a bit heroic or something like that you know this is not but almost unusual. the opposite of heroic it's yeah. almost the opposite of heroic that you're making yourself that's right but you can be um uh, i suppose a martyr would be a better mm. word than a hero right yeah but alistair if um we do live in a complicated and difficult world i mean we you know it's hard for people now coming out of school to get jobs the cost of living is up there are all kinds of challenges it is i'm not disputing for a second that the generation that's coming now has a very difficult time in a lot of ways it, could it not be that all of this really is lending itself to a form of trauma that it that it's a legitimate word just a 
different kind of trauma, perhaps, than a mother watching her child die or a soldier fighting in battle. But internally, the same, the 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 pile on of all these things has cumulatively led to trauma. Well, um, no, but I think uh, one thing you could say that is legitimately true is that, say, for example, addiction rates have increased. That is, um, without any shadow of a doubt, the case. And the funny thing about addiction, just to pick up another a sort of related topic, if you like, because one of the main um, theories of addiction now, of course, is that it's caused by childhood trauma, <laughs> which is not anywhere near correct. Um, but addiction rates certainly have gone up. Now, interestingly, um, rates of child abuse, for example, what you'd think would be traumatic, without any doubt, went down during the 1990s. So, in fact, approximately halved in the U.S. between 1990 and 2000. So if the childhood trauma theory of addiction were correct, then we would now be seeing 20 and 30-somethings that were less addicted, half as addicted as before, and they're not. So addiction rates have gone up two, three, four times, and most especially in that group. So what we do know is that addiction is inversely related to trauma. So I think that addiction, just to take one example, is probably driven um, by a lack of adversity. It's actually the complete Say that again. Opposite. Addiction is driven by a lack of adversity? A lack of adversity. Why? That doesn't make sense. So. Well, if you think that we are less traumatized than we ever have been, and yet our addiction rates are higher. If you compare North American addiction rates to sub-Saharan addiction rates, well, they pale by comparison. Surely sub-Saharan Africa has more trauma than North America. Uh, there's not many child soldiers in North America. So real trauma where it exists does not occasion vast amounts of addiction, quite the opposite. But could so, it not be that could it not be that we are um that, that I mean all trauma does not have to be on the same plane. Could it not be that we simply I understand trauma better now? And yes, the child soldier in Africa who has seen horrendous things clearly that's one thing, but uh, you know, it might be another trauma, but just slightly less, but we just understand it better. Therefore we can call it that now better than we could before. Well, of course you could say um, that there is a great deal of, what's the word I would use, um, difficulty in adapting to life in the West, certainly for Gen Z and to a slightly lesser degree millennials. Um, yes, that's true. They have got it tough in some ways right and but the ways that they've got it tough are not traumatizing they are um denying of meaning so it's difficult for young people today to feel connected you might almost say that unless they were literally starving that some people in um young people in poorer countries in a sense have it better because they have more extended family they have um initiation rights um they have uh, in, an intact culture so whilst they've got it tough, they've got some things better than we have. And I think that is absolutely what's at the bottom of it, things like addiction, is there are no um, meaningful rites of passage, no extended family, no community. Uh, unemployment is very linked to addiction, which, of course, is not necessarily traumatic, but it is very, very tough to experience because you lose your sense of meaning, you lose your roles in life and where are you without that you're you're all at sea so certainly our society is all at sea um men um unemployed don't have the roles they used to work no steel works no mining all that sort of thing that is really profound in the way that it 
affects people, but it's not trauma. So uh, I suppose go... you could loosely call it cultural trauma, right? But it's not real trauma. Let's go back to the beginning then, what we were talking about here. Uh, so so Sally, who is a Gen Z, uh, says that she has trauma from whatever. Uh, you might say, well, I don't really consider that trauma. That doesn't fall into the definition. Ultimately, does it matter? Should we just say, well, who cares? Mm. If this somehow makes you feel better about yourself, which seems, again, like an oxymoron, that trauma would make you feel better about yourself. But if somehow this makes you feel better about yourself, who cares if you want to call it trauma? Go ahead. doesn't make any difference to me. Mm. I suppose the uh, psychological argument, the health argument behind that would be, no, it doesn't. It it, it would affect their mental health negatively, uh, in my view, and an increasing amount of psychologists and counsellors' views. It, no. Um, if somebody is facing a life difficulty, let's call it a significant life event, or they're unhappy, it's important not to add hyperbole on top of that. Um, that's the first thing, is human beings are resilient they have um depths of resilience with within them that they must be taught or helped to uh, unearth and bring about um, and help to change their circumstances that won't happen if they think they're a victim and the thing about trauma is it externalizes the problem if you've been traumatized by definition almost certainly it's something that happened to you so it was done to you. Now, certainly in things like addiction treatment, traditionally we have looked at the fact that we are the problem. And that's been quite effective. You know, 12-step movements and so on have been very effective because they do uh, teach people to look at themselves and what they're doing wrong and therefore what they could ch change to help themselves. And at the end of the day, that really is the only thing you can change. So if you externalize the problem and say there's this external thing, society, teachers, parents, whatever, that is that is doing it to me, it might be true in some, some senses, but you can't do much with that information because until those people change and start being nice to you, you're stuck. So that's the first bit, um, the first reason why it's not mentally healthy to encourage people to self-identify as traumatized. And the second bit is, called, as I said at the beginning, because it's just wrong. And terminology and lexicon is, is very important. You know, the words that we use are very, very important. And when they start to get um, twisted beyond their original meanings to a ludicrous degree, we have trouble communicating uh, in society, you know, and especially in things like medical care. And I agree with you wholeheartedly on, on language. I've had this discussion before that words do matter. And as we change the language into meaningless pablum, it doesn't help us. But yeah. if this is true, if what you're saying is true and trauma has been redefined and manipulated and swished down and watered down and all the rest, why are psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors and other people who are in this field saying, no, hold on a second, you're misusing the word. Let's keep it to the people who really have been traumatized so they can get the treatment they need. And we don't conflate that or confuse it with people who might be depressed or might be having a tough time or might have gone through a difficult moment, but it's a different thing. Why are they not speaking out? Um, uh, you mean, why are more psychologists not speaking out about the fact that the word trauma is being misused? Right, right. If that's um, true. Because, because it's a very, very corrupt field of endeavor, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, it is, in my view, increasingly becoming an almost entirely disreputable field. 
So that would be my very controversial um, reply. Mm. Um, I do not any longer have a very high opinion of the field of psychology in general, and I will make an exception for academic psychology and research um, researchers. Um, but clinical psychologists, counselors, and psychotherapists, I would argue, are not much use to anybody. Alistair, we've uh, got to run. We're yeah. uh, we're short on time. But one one last thing that we have seen over years in whatever it is um, that you know kids rebel against their parents they change they don't love the way their parents or generation was pendulums swing back and forth do you see a time coming when the idea of this will change a bit in what we were talking about earlier that strength will once again be seen as a positive thing that we're not going to want to talk about our trauma or is this deeply embedded and it's going to stick around no the tide is turning and there's a, a resurgence of stoicism and ideas like that. And I think that the counseling field will uh, change and people will concentrate more on behavioral change and things like that, rather than a, a sort of this Freudian uh, mother bashing mm -hmm. and um, explorations of childhood. I think uh, the change is coming. Um, we have become too, too fragile and a good dose of stoicism is in order. And I think we'll see it across uh, all fields. Yeah, uh, that is Alistair Morty. You can read his piece in The Spectator, which is, again, is the uh, the British uh, paper, How the Cult of Trauma Took Over Mental Health. He's also got another piece in the National Post that you can look up, How Trauma Was Hijacked by Activists, Creating a Generation of Victims. Uh, Alistair, really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.